Hello and welcome back to the Great Woman Artist Podcast. Last week we interviewed the brilliant Amy Sherald and I'm delighted to say that this week we interview the young painter Louise Giovanelli. But just before we get to this, I am delighted to say that this episode is generously supported by Christie's Auction House, where leading women artists are in the spotlight this autumn in their modern and contemporary Middle Eastern art auctions. On the 2nd of November, the Part 1 Live Auction in London will feature works by internationally recognised female Female artists like Etel Adnan, Munir Farman Farmanhayan, Kamala Ibrahim Ishak, Samia Halabi, and Rania Sarakbi. Their part two online auction for modern and contemporary Middle Eastern art is now open for bidding until the 3rd of November. You can find a diverse selection of painting, sculpture, prints and works on paper at accessible price points. Highlights of this section include the likes of Hava Karaman, Donna Awatani and Helen Carl. Head on to their free exhibition displaying both part one and two sales at Christie's in London, which is now open to the public until the 2nd of November. Or visit christies.com to find out more. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most esteemed young painters working in the world right now, Louise Giovanelli. Giovanelli's paintings bridge art history and modern pop cultural narratives and explore the tensions between representation and abstraction, fiction and reality, the historic and contemporary, painting and the digital sphere. Retaining the meticulousness of Renaissance paintings and coalescing it with 80s and 90s music videos, Giovanelli's delicate and electrically luminous scapes offer a language rooted in history, yet feel completely otherworldly. On a screen, they feel like one thing, but meet them in the flesh and they become real, with dabs of white oil paint sparkling off the canvas. For me, they are time-based. Sit with these paintings and it's like their surfaces are constantly moving. Born in the 1990s and now based in Manchester, Giovanelli has quickly risen up the ranks as one of Britain's leading young painters. Having completed her BA at Manchester School of Art and her MA at the Stadtschule in Frankfurt with Professor Amy Silman in 2020, Louise Giovanelli has since exhibited all over the world, including at Grimm Gallery, the Hayward Gallery, Manchester Art Gallery and more recently at White Cube with her exhibition As If Almost. Giovanelli's paintings are theatrical and stage-like. She creates a language that feels like a heightened version of reality, that looks to Renaissance painting and film stills and encompasses photography, classical sculpture, architecture and painting. They feel almost too good to be true, full of mystery and enigma. As the artist has said herself, 
These curtains, once thrown back, offer this promise to enter another realm, and once closed, contain that promise. The painting hangs in a suspended state, leaving us wondering whether the show is over, or in fact, just beginning. Louise Giovanelli, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hello, Katie. Thank you for the invitation. I'm so excited for our conversation. <sighs> Me too. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's wonderful to be recording here in White Cube. And congratulations on the show. It's just phenomenal. Thank you. So I was completely entranced coming to this exhibition. I spent about an hour here last Saturday. I mentioned this idea of them almost being too good to be true. It's like they are untouchable. They feel familiar, yet they are rooted in this almost otherworldly state, whether it be their subject, the dazzling glitz of celebrity or the suspense of being behind a curtain. It's like they encompass all these different art forms, architecture, sculpture, film, yet what they really are is just paint. Why are you drawn to the medium of paint? Painting for me is the most elastic of all the mediums. It's the most transformative and it's capaciousness is what I find so magical about it. The fact that it can be a red smear or a vase that's translucent and lifelike. I just love that elasticity with it. But also with painting, with oil painting in particular, comes that sense of history. It's just imbued deeply with a sense of history. So that loaded quality, which I really enjoy. I love that idea of being in conversation with all these people from like the last 700 years or something. Uh, but your paintings, they place art history in relation to sort of modern pop cultural narratives, bridging celebrity culture and the cults of saints. I'm fascinated by this idea of icons. I mean, you've said before, we have these icons and I think there's almost a religious tone to everything. Even though many of us would call ourselves atheists now, we still behave in a way that's spiritual and worship certain individuals. I mean, why are you interested in this? Yeah, so recently I've been reflecting on these different notions of contemporary worship and devotion. Things like film stars, pop stars, celebrity culture, social media, all these types of things. I'm interested in it because I think there's a religious element to all these things in the contemporary sphere. Whereas once this worship and sense of devotion would take place in, say, like a church, under an altar, in the presence of icons, now it takes place in the consumer sphere. So I think we still require this kind of sense of spectacle, this sense of devotion. That's why I'm interested in it. And also this idea that the gallery is kind of like a cathedral or something. The way that museums are even built is like a sort of temple of sorts. And your paintings almost become like relics. Yeah, absolutely. The church is now the music venue, music videos, pop stars, social media, celebrity culture, that we still have this need to go and worship at the altar of something, but just those icons have changed. And also but this idea of transformation or something, you know, whether it historically in churches be like the body into bread or blood into wine. But it is interesting how actually paintings do have this transformative quality and this idea that, you know, when you go to the Louvre, the amount of people who want to get up close to the Mona Lisa or something, it's like this idea of like the untouchable or something. Absolutely. And I think oil painting being this transformative medium, it's alchemy at its highest. It's, you know, to make this kind of coloured mud essentially actually look like something else. It's like the ultimate sense of the transcendence and transformation and subtly religious, I think. Totally. How do you want people to feel in front of these paintings? I'm ultimately trying to create just a space, like a zone of contemplation, like a psychologically charged atmosphere. So I'm not really trying to overtly imply any message. It's more just creating this space, this tone, this slowness. I just hope that people feel almost just changed after they see it. You know, after you see a really good film and you come out and you just feel like the world is a bit 
different and you can't really put your finger on it, on it but it's just something has happened, something's transformed from watching that thing, from viewing that thing. Totally. And also you're actually dealing with these, I guess, familiar kind of imagery as well, whether it be like the curtains. And suddenly when I look at my curtains or something, you know, I'm seeing a Louise Giovanelli painting and actually it's, you know, there's sort of kind of drama to these everyday items or objects that we have in our world. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to fuse these iconic, symbolic, very loaded previous icons with some everyday things and make people view them in a different way. So some of those curtains in in White Cube were just my house curtains just in my living room but I blew them up and exaggerated and manipulated them so that they appear to be more spectacular than they are and maybe in a sense all curtains can be spectacular even small ones like it's the same thing as a stage curtain right your little window curtains they're the same idea it's like a threshold it's obscurity it's masking it's drama but just on a different level yeah it's like looking at things differently Totally. And this idea of like, you know, is it day or night or, you know, there's so much sort of suspense in it as well. Is it kind of mid play or has the play not begun yet or has everyone gone? Yeah, I like to play with that a lot. Is that kind of ambiguity. Have we missed the show? Is the show about to start? Has it just ended? Are we behind the curtain? Are we in front of the curtain? Also, this sense of gravity with the curtain, I think is really important. Just this stillness. Also, it's quite radical, I guess, to have a curtain just pressed so close up to the to the surface of a painting. Yeah. But also this idea that for me, it doesn't really matter whether people call you a figurative painter or abstract, you know, this idea of the kind of unfixedness of representation. And I love this idea that your paintings have this such human quality. You know, we have curtains in our everyday life or we see a woman's body, but it's not quite there or something. I mean, they're full of ambiguity, yet the figure is never there. I mean, I'd love for you to talk about this idea, like why are you drawn to the kind of ambiguity of the person or the figure or the presence yeah it's always important for me to have this ambiguity for the paintings especially of figures to contain this ambiguity because it's never usually important that they're understood as real people with personalities I think that is actually a distraction they're symbols they're archetypes really so take the orbiter series for example or the surface to air series and here this pop star series it's not really important that anyone understands who that is who that pop star is it's more the idea of the pop star the symbolic iconic value of what they represent and so that's why the head is cut off that's why there's this quite dramatic cropping involved because as soon as a person is denoted as soon as someone sees the face then it just becomes like oh I know who that is and then something's lost there it's more the archetype what they're supposed to be and also in the the portraits I mean I suppose the one of Carrie is probably the only one where you can really obviously see who that is but I think that kind of functions in a different way usually the portraits the the eyes never look out to the viewer or if if there are eyes they're averted or they look down because as soon as eyes look out at you it's like a confrontation and that becomes a portrait and you understand them as having a personality and I don't I don't want that it's more an archetype I'm looking for but that's so fascinating because that's exactly what celebrity culture is and like the mystique of the celebrity That's true, actually. Yeah, I guess that's true. We worship the idea of them. We don't worship necessarily their personalities. If we knew their personalities, we would be horrified, probably. Yeah. (laughs) And they'd probably be really boring. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's like never meet your heroes type thing, I guess. Yeah. Same thing. But also, again, talking about the idea of this ambiguity of the figure, I was thinking recently about, have you ever read Michael Fried's Art and Objecthood? No. It's a really cool essay where he talks about anthropomorphism 
in minimalist sculpture and he talks about how these kind of Donald Judd minimalist sculptures they have this anthropomorphic feeling to them almost like a I think he calls it a presence so they're sculpture and they're minimalist and they're geometric but they have this feeling of almost aspiring to like a human-like presence and I was thinking about that in relation to some of the works I've been making recently the orbiter and the surface to air I actually think I'm trying to do something similar but opposite so I'm trying to have humans that aspire to the condition of an object so the surface to air they become like a Corinthian column almost and the orbiter it's like it's a person but it's also like a disco ball you know because you just mentioned the human lack of human figures and I think yeah it's again that question of representation and abstraction and I think I'm trying to show the object likeness of a figure so the legs become architectural almost like a column and then the body becomes a disco ball and kind of spinning around. This idea of like atmosphere as well, like with the altar. I mean, I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with the painting in New York at Kasman. And what I think you do so brilliantly with the Orbiter series especially is you feel like you're inside something that feels almost untangible. So it feels like you're in the middle of a, like in a dance floor or something and you're having like the best time. But you can never quite hold on to that memory. Yeah, because it's, it's always fleeting. It's like sublimity or something. Yeah, fleeting moments. I've been interested in that for, well, ever since I started painting, really. I think light is very fundamental there because when you speak about being on the dance floor and these fleeting moments, light is so fundamental because it's, it's flickering, it's transient, it never lasts. It's no surprise that pop stars use light like that. You know, they wear these glitter dresses so that they can sparkle and so that attention is drawn to them and they have this dazzling bewitching enchanting effect but then it's transient like you said it, you can never quite capture it and the orbiter piece that's yeah from this music video of light kind of bouncing off a dress and spinning around and it contains the sense of movement but if you were to encounter that in real life it would just be gone in a split second but to paint it actually solidifies and adds like a, a weight to it an objectness to it Totally. And do you think about creating an atmosphere in your paintings? Yeah, all the time. I think that's one of the most crucial things is trying to create a mood, an atmosphere, a tone, this kind of psychologically charged space that people can just swim around in almost. Because I, I think I mentioned this idea in the introduction, like they, they feel like they encompass all these different things like film or everything. And it's like you're in this three-dimensional space when you're looking at your paintings. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that good. <laughs> yeah, I liked what you said at the beginning. I think that's that's true. I'm, I mean, I just mentioned before about these architectural columns. And so obviously I'm interested in sculpture, architecture, but also film is heavy. Their television photography is in there, in a sense. The formats obviously are quite exaggerated, especially in this new show. They're quite totemic. And a lot of them feels like it's been stretched or elevated. And yeah, I'm trying to create this, I guess, like structural feel as well. It's kind of column-like feel to things. And when you look to sort of creating, whether it be the kind of column-like framework or the ambiguity between representation and abstraction, I mean, what do you think that framework can allow for? I just think it's a very interesting zone to operate in. I, I enjoy how I'm able to vacillate between a more fixed representational style a more defined pictorial style and then just totally swing back into like a dissolving realm <laughs> 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 um, i should have mentioned it for the listeners 
So I understand. I've curated an exhibition in New York at the moment called Dissolving Realms, which Louise is in. Yep, name drop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, when you see birds, what's it called when the birds kind of go like a uh, murmuration of starlings? You know, when they kind of fly and they go together and it becomes this black cloud and then they kind of space out. That's what I feel like representation and abstraction is where you can swing between both both areas. I never really wanted to plant my flag very resolutely in one camp or the other because I enjoy that freedom of just being able to move around. I think it's more interesting when there's this ambiguity there. I've always said overly defined painting I don't really enjoy because you're making a picture then, you're not making a painting. I think there's actually a very interesting distinction there. Totally. And also I think it's an interesting language to have on a time like today as well. Yeah, absolutely. But what I love about your work is this in-betweenness because I almost think like figurative painting I feel like now artists are going so far into it like it almost looks like a sort of crop of a figurative painting and then Mm. it becomes like an abstraction does that make sense it's almost because we see so many images like every single day like imagery just becomes so warped I feel like what's very interesting about you is it almost looks that's like a crop of like a larger figurative image but that Mm. would be giving away too much yeah, well, the crop is very important to what I do. I mean, that, that was probably the first device that I ever coined, I guess. I started to use it when I was studying my BA and it really began as a learning device, almost like a magnifying glass. So when I was teaching myself to paint or learning how to paint, I would go around museums and galleries of historical painting and just take snapshots of just certain areas of, like you say, a much larger painting and then that would become the painting. But now it actually functions differently it's almost like a device to slow down the looking for the viewer to control the looking of the viewer and it's quite a cutthroat mechanism really everything around the frame is just taken out no excess is left it's just the most interesting part to me anything else is like a distraction so I'm looking for this all at onceness when you see the painting I want it just to like go straight to the vein type thing that's what the cropping device does And I'm fascinated. You were born in 1993, raised in Wales. You mentioned this idea of like teaching yourself paint and art. I mean, I'm fascinated by your upbringing. Was art present in your life? No, it wasn't really. When I look back, um, yeah, like you said, I grew up in a small town in South Wales. Parents weren't artists, didn't come from an artistic background. I'd say music, classical music was more of a thing. I was a trained musician when I was growing up. I kind of thought that was my direction. Got more into art drawing and stuff when I was yeah 16 17 18 and then obviously when I started studying but no growing up it wasn't really I did used to draw a lot but it was drawing used to function almost like as a as a response to things that I was listening to or watching or um like I used to make a lot of fan art (laughs) (laughs) love that yeah like Like, oh my god probably (laughs) I made a drawing of them But yeah, my parents still have this drawing I made of Marilyn Monroe in the bathroom. I go back every time. I'm like, oh my God. But yeah, I made it when I was like 12. It's actually quite good. Jimi Hendrix, uh, Sid Vicious. Like I'd go through all these stages in music and then I'd draw them. So that was, it was like fan art. Do you remember the band The Horrors? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did a drawing of like the lead singer and submitted it to the NME magazine and it got published in the NME magazine. Wow, yeah, that's that was so my, cool. It's my, my first exhibition. <laughs> essentially and I was like I hope that's on your CV (laughs) publications yeah yeah literally 10 10 years old (laughs) showing the enemy no that was the first time when I was like oh maybe the art thing could be 
because it was endorsement in like the tiniest way possible. I was like, mm, okay. But also the idea of celebrity culture all comes back to this. It does, yeah. I, I didn't really kind of connect the, the dots, but I think maybe that's actually, yeah, maybe there was something there early on. And I think it's fascinating because I'm 94, you're 93. I think that's probably why I'm so drawn to your paintings because they feel so current and now. And I, I feel like because they encompass so much. And I guess we grew up at this really strange time where I'm sure you remember your parents having black and white mobile phones, but still like they were present in the kind of birth of the Walkman phones, then the Motorola Razor or, you know, all these things. Oh, I had that phone. Yeah. <laughs> that was my phone. But it's like how images evolved, right? From playing Snake on a black and white phone to Brick Breaker on Blackberries or, you know, all these different things. And suddenly now we have these like shiny iPhones. I think we grew up in such an interesting time where everything shifted like the last 25 years mm. everything went from like naught to 100 like all that like testing of like technology yeah that's so true there were so many stages mm. went from like nokia 3210 <laughs> oh snake i was really good at snake um and then yeah all the picture phones and then phones started to get really small do you remember that yeah and then they just got really big again and i think that's because of images because people just were drawn to these images but yeah and the internet as well i used to be such an internet kid my parents had this big um you know like the old school computers that mm. look like a big plastic cube and i just remember that dial-up sound of the cable and um yeah I'd just be on it for hours msn bebo <laughs> myspace but i think with your paintings like the electricity that they give you like this luminosity and like i think your paintings are really fascinating actually to view them on a screen but and then see them in real life they're two completely different experiences for me anyway i think i'm drawn to them because they're giving me something and actually we as almost programmed as kids who were born in the 90s to like have something that gives you something or sparkling or images or I, I mean I try and span quite a lot of history I mean it, there obviously are uh, contemporary images in there like pop star videos and stuff but then there are things from like you know the 70s and 60s in there and there's this nostalgic coloration in some of them and the surface is usually quite grainy almost like old televisions but Maybe that's 90s, but maybe it's before that. Maybe I was, I don't know what I was watching. But it kind of reminds me of like Cribs or like, you know, the birth of MTV or something in like the late 90s, 2000s, like that kind of like looking at Mariah Carey's like gold bath in Miami. Yeah. But that is so fascinating because you're almost like putting that into painting and you're bridging it with our history as well. I love just to connect the dots over time and be like, this instance of contemporary extravagance is just the same <laughs> as in the 1300s or trying to just show people that that it's still happening in a more lurid, gaudy way. And when was it that you became fascinated with the old masters? I think it was when I started studying, so at Manchester School of Art, so probably, yeah, when I was 18. I didn't really know anything about art history before that because I didn't really come from that type of background or there was no galleries really where, where I grew up. So when I found out about them, when I started to visit them myself, I just couldn't get enough. I was just absolutely enthralled um i mean it served two functions really it was a way to learn to paint just that very academic way of learning through looking at what's come before kind of repeating what the old masters have done but then it was also interested because of the compositional factors in in them like once you understand that it's just a formula like it's not just a formula it's incredible but say all these old master paintings they're significant and famous not always because of what the content is the subject it's actually how it's put together you know like the golden triangle and the um, renaissance 
perspective. Yeah, perspective and the yeah, compositional devices that are used to keep your eyes within the canvas frame. And it's it's so complicated, but they make it look so simple, right? So it's it's Jesus and it's Mary and it's the Madonna and all these kind of iconic symbols, but it's how they're put together that makes them masterpieces. I just became fascinated with that. Um, and I wanted to learn more and more about it. And so what do you take from them that you then apply to your work? I think that the main thing I took was the composition. I just really studied that for a long time and realised that simplicity is key with a lot of masterpieces. And I guess that's why my paintings tend to just have maybe one thing in them, usually. I can't think of any painting recently that I've made that's got something in the background and then something in the foreground. Like I don't really like to deal with space like that. Everything needs to be quite up close. Before I make the painting, before I begin it, I'm always sat there cropping on the screen. I spend hours on it just trying to get the exact composition so that it feels harmonious to look at. Because if it's just a little bit off, it just doesn't work. It's like these slight adjustments are so, so integral, I think. So that's probably the most important thing I took from the old masters, as well as the technique, like the layering, glazing technique. Those two things, I would say. Your work, when you see them in the flesh, they're so luminous. It's like they have a sort of light underneath them or something. Yeah, the luminosity was a big, big thing, probably the most fundamental thing. I think it's so important. I think when something glows, it it gives it a real sense of mysticism or spirituality and, again, this religious feeling, and I, I, want, I wanted my paintings to contain that, so I studied how to make that happen. <laughs> That's why you have to learn from the people who did it best, which are yeah, usually Renaissance, Northern Renaissance artists, glazing, using... Uh, bright white gesso all of that technique quite laborious kind of painstaking technique but it really really pays off but so interesting how the fact that these masterpieces still exist you know 700 years on means that they they are these such incredible relics and they hold people's eye right and the same way like a phone like people are addicted to phones and screens and like there's a tv in a room i will look at it because mm. terrible attention span it's shiny you get addicted to yeah. it yeah, well, I don't think it's just you. I think everyone, humans are programmed to look at light, to be dazzled by spectacle. We look yeah. we look at light phenomenon. We like to see it. We're just drawn to it like moths to a flame. And I think that's why churches were so important because be sitting in the darkness, usually before electricity, and then you'd have these icons under candlelight and the icon is so uh, tied to the idea of light. And then light in painting, it's so enchanting and now in the contemporary sphere that is exactly the same when we go and see a band it wouldn't work if there were no light on the stage no like spotlights and things need to be like moving around and it's for that reason it's to hold our attention i think light has been used throughout history to control humans behavior don't you think yeah yeah and just fascinating how even just where how we've grown up in the last 30 years or whatever just that completely evolving and evolving. But also I'm fascinated by this idea of materiality. I don't know if you saw the Raphael exhibition at the National Gallery, but I, I was sort of looking at my pictures on my phone the other day and it was quite interesting what you were saying about cropping. And I actually took these really zoomed up pictures of like the, the materiality in that exhibition was just phenomenal in terms of like the way that he executed sort of fluff or velvet or silk or lace. I just found that absolutely breathtaking. I mean, what are your thoughts on the kind of materiality in Renaissance painting? When you look at all that, all that painting, all the artists who were operating during that time, it almost seems like they were having a competition with each other. Who can paint the best fur or who can paint the best 
fabric or the best kind of jewelry or gold. I guess I've tried to do that in a certain sense for gold shirts that I painted. It was a kind of challenge for me to try. I guess I was trying to insert myself in that history somehow. <laughs> yes, yeah, quite right. But again, it's that ultimate alchemy, you know, to make paint be gold mm. seems almost impossible, but it is possible. So then you went to Manchester School of Art yeah. between 2011 and 2015, and then you went to go and study with Amy Silman. I mean, what sort of skills had you already acquired at this point and what did you learn from your education? Well, I, Manchester School of Art was really the time that I learned to paint. I went there for that specific reason. When I, I took a few years out and then I went to the Städelschule, I didn't go there with the intention of learning to paint. I'd already done that in a sense. I arrived with quite a firm idea of what kind of artist I wanted to be, but I did go there with an intention to think harder and think deeper. And so the reason that it was Amy that I was interested in going to study with wasn't even necessarily her work to be honest it was more I wanted to learn how to think like her or think like the type of artist she was and she still is you know because she's got such a high standing in the contemporary art world she's a fantastic educator you know she's not just a painter she makes zines she does lectures she writes she's funny you know she's got these other great qualities those are the reasons really that I was excited to study with her. What drew you to her work? Well she's an abstract painter, New York-based uh, abstract painter. Because I studied at Manchester School of Art and really became entrenched in this Northern European art tradition. And after a while, I thought, oh, maybe I'm missing something in addition to this, which is another painting form, another painting tradition, which is like the New York kind of American abex uh, scene, which Amy was such a part of. That was another reason that I was excited to study with her because I thought it would increase my knowledge. And she's a disciplinarian as well. <laughs> she was really firm about you have to come to class on time and because painting's a discipline as well as a practice and you need to be there every day and you can't have the output that she has without having that work ethic. So it was all of that that I was really drawn to. That's so cool. Mm. And also it was so cool to see your painting also with like Lee Krasner and Howardina Pendel and, yeah. and like seeing like that in Roost in that context. Yeah, it was fantastic. And interesting that you were interested in, in that. Yeah, I mean Lee Krasner, yeah. It was just an incredible I wish I'd saw the show, but the images you sent were <laughs> I think did did it justice as much as you can. It was yeah, fantastic. But I mean, since you have been exhibiting across the world and making these incredible series, you know, like Cameo or Plexus or Auto de Fe and these incredible images of these sort of zoomed in, cropped, like stills from film or something. I mean, I'm fascinated by your series that you work from film and TV. I mean, why particularly Sissy's SpaceX performance of Carrie in the 1976 film, but also Mariah Carey, Christmas specials, etc. Why are you drawn to these specific film and television series it's sort of a nostalgia there that i'm interested in the coloration of that type of film really intrigues me like i can't ever imagine making a portrait or a painting of like a very high res high definition hollywood blockbuster because there's nothing to grip onto there you know like carrie and peeping tom and these films with a sort of grain to the surface of the film and the colors are a little bit bleached out and that's what I'm really drawn to when there's almost gaps there. Like I almost feel sometimes like the images I like to work from or that I think are the most interesting almost have to have 
like a tooth to grip so the painting can like grip onto it. If it's too high res, then there's just nothing. It just slips off almost. There needs to be low res kind of graininess, shadows, contrast, all this. That's like my ideal image to work from because it's just the source thing. It's just the starting point and then the paint takes it in a new direction. It needs to add a lot more to it. Otherwise, it just becomes like a copy, which, um, yeah, I never really want to do. I want to take it somewhere else. But yeah, those films, I've always been interested in cult films, indie films, low-budget horror, all of that stuff. Like fake blood. Yeah, all of that. It's uh, always been intriguing to me. But they also kind of remind me in a way of Cindy Sherman. The power of Cindy Sherman for me is this ability, a bit like the curtains, really, even though that's quite a sort of rogue comparison. But for me, there's this suspense in Cindy Sherman's work because you don't quite know what's going on, Mm. what's happening sort of beyond. It's like rear window, right? Do you use particular stills that show this very kind of heightened moment? Do you think about the narrative of that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely what I'm drawn to is these instances of ambiguous uh, emotion or where the expression is very ambiguous. I'm always looking for or thinking about boundaries you know when does a laugh become a scream also again it's the religious thing there's this sense of rapture in all of those film stills it's like almost the subject is overtaken by the spirit these kind of madonna images where she's like screaming or in ecstasy or it's like erotic all all these possibilities i really enjoy them being encapsulated in this one one image so yeah i'm always drawn to those types of expression also, the sense of still violence I'm quite interested in, like the peeping Tom seeing this shadow of a knife, but she's not grimacing, she's kind of smiling, but you can see this impending doom coming towards her. Or in the carry, it's that moment just before they start to throw the pig's blood at her. So she's kind of smiling and she doesn't quite know that that's the next stage. And then I, then I made the next stage for this show when the pig's blood's on and she's kind of screaming and it's elongated and stretched and yeah. Almost like monks scream, you know. <laughs> the elastic of paint again. It's like the elastic totally. of flesh and everything. What is fascinating, though, is this idea that when you do paint Mariah Carey or Carrie, it's almost like the audience, I know what's going to happen next. Is this idea that actually we as an audience know that she's about to have whatever splattered on her. And actually there's a tension there as well, because it's almost like the painting doesn't know yet, but we as the audience know. Oh, that's an interesting thing to say. Yeah, definitely. That's why that film it was important that at least some people knew it i mean it's cult but see most people still know what carrie is i couldn't do it with a, a totally unknown film i do enjoy the fact that some people know what it is and know that impending sense of like doom and the next thing because then the, the audience start to get excited about it it's almost like they're waiting and egging it on the next scene they're finishing the the story for you or for themselves yeah Totally. It's like, you know, I always think about Pauline Boti when I think about your work as well, because she was so obsessed with Marilyn Monroe and, you know, painted her as the only blonde in the world or this beautiful work where she's almost like, you know, she's in this sparkling dress and she's so luminous and she's so glorious and she's almost untouchable, right? Mm. We know what's going to happen to her. We know this isn't real. Mm. And she paints this such genius painting where it's as though like two cinema screens about to close in on her. Oh, and it's so magic I because seen either that it's like you see her through like the crack of a door wow. and and it's daylight and it's beautiful and it's dazzling yeah. or it's like her impending fate which was yeah. not being able to live that's so subtle mm. yeah that's, wow that sounds incredible I haven't seen that one but yeah I will 
Um, but also, sorry, um, I'm fascinated by this, idea, by this idea of gold in your work as well. And I know we've spoken about religion and you know, this idea of like gold in show business as well. I mean, your wager series that were at the Hayward last year are just totally fascinating. They're just these gold shirts, yet, you know, they're, the heads again are cro cropped mm -hmm. off. I mean, why are you fascinated by gold? Again, I think it's this sense of history that it belongs to all the artists who've attempted to paint gold. Again, it's the, the sense of it being the ultimate alchemy to be able to do that. Gold leaf, gold gilt altarpieces and the extravagance of all of that and again trying to almost insert myself into that history it's a challenge to myself but then I'm also interested in the polar opposite of that which is when does extravagance and luxury become tacky and gaudy and cheap you know like lame shirts or fake gold jewelry and all of that um, it's like crossing that fine line between like tacky and classy. Totally, yeah. I'm always really interested in that, where that boundary is and just pushing it a little bit too hard. So the gold shirt, I was thinking of more like 80s glitz glamour, kind of tacky, cheap gold. And I was thinking of TV game show hosts, you know, when they used to wear these like... Oh my God, big... it's so TV game show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like Robot Wars. <laughs> yeah, but then it has this slight connotation of priests and curtains. I wanted the the duplication to almost mirror the curtain diptychs that I was making at the time because the shirts are fabric ultimately they're yeah shrouds but to have this double meaning was always it's always important and I'm also fascinated I know that your mother was Catholic well that is Catholic. yeah 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 she's Irish Catholic and my dad is also comes from a Roman Catholic Italian family but he was not really a believer but yeah, I grew up with church every Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> but I was the same and I'm now oh, really? not religious. I think why I'm drawn to your work or painting in general and the kind of spectacle of museums and everything is because of this kind of being in the Catholic church, whether it be the ritual or the stained glass windows. I find it fascinating that you also had this kind of upbringing. Yeah. Well, I do think, you know, often whether it had an effect probably did it must have gone into my psyche somehow i mean we would go to a church in wales mostly every sunday but then because my dad his italian family and emigrated to london we'd come to london all the time and really the church that stands out for me from my childhood is st peter's roman catholic church in clerkenwell i don't know if you know the one but no. it's just it's just incredible it's italian church so all the sermons are in italian and it's just the extravagance in there is incredible just everything's gilt ornate decorative just excess and i remember that very vividly rather than the one in wales which is obviously going to be on a smaller <laughs> scale so yeah maybe it's gone in on some some level yeah fascinating just you know this show i love i love its title it's called as if almost and i think it's just such a simple title i mean just tell us can you tell us a bit about the show yeah so the the title as if almost came about because I was thinking a lot about the word quasi or quasi thinking, you know, having the connotations of being almost the thing, but not quite, or like this suggestive of something, but not quite there. And I thought that mirrored quite nicely the types of imagery that I was working with and paintings that I was creating, this suggestive of a narrative, this kind of sense of mystery. But yeah, I would say the overarching theme is probably these contemporary modes of devotion that I'm trying to show but then also there are some works in there that are quite singular like the the silo hair works and the equator works they kind of have their own zone to them but there's movement in there there's stillness there's 
very large works next to very small works. It contains a lot of opposites, I think. Fantastic. Well, Louise Giovanelli, thank you so much for this. Just riveting. Honestly, just thank you for such a fascinating conversation about paint. But as is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a woman artist from history or now who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Yes, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've decided <laughs> there are a few, but the one... You could have more than one. I Okay. Well, the, the one I've definitely decided would be Francesca Woodman, the photographer. Although I think photographer, it's not really enough to describe her as a photographer. I consider her to be more, well, yeah, just an artist in general. Incredible body of work and obviously tragically died when she was like 22 or something. So it would definitely be her I meet. And I would probably ask her about painting because I just, I consider her work to be painterly. Like her attention to the surface of the photographs is is just so thorough and complex and how she paints essentially with light and format the composition all of that is just very very intriguing so it'd probably be her my second choice was Gwen John you know I love Gwen John yeah the Welsh painter yeah those two love that (laughs) yeah well thank you so much for coming on the podcast today it's been great thank you so much for the invitation Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Woman Artist Podcast with the fantastic Louise Giovanelli. I am absolutely enthralled by her art and urge you all to look it up. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardis Milenic and research assistant was Viva Ruji. If you have been enjoying these episodes, please do rate and review and we'll see you next week for the Great Woman Artist Podcast with me, Katie Hessel.